really don't want to be by myself. <laughs> but welcome to Thunder Noodle. I cannot do the oogly boogly, woolly woo by myself. And the reason you guys are stuck with just little old me today is because B has gone off on holiday to go visit her family for Christmas. And I cannot blame the poor girl, but my heart is very sad because it is not the same doing this all by my lonesome. And I considered printing out a picture of B's face and sticking it on the wall and then trying to think of what she would say and then try and be like, yeah, slay queen. But I, I, I don't have her vibe and I do think it would be a little bit strange. I also tried to convince my husband to sit in on the podcast and join me but he was like nah uh -uh, I don't want to hear that because he's not a true crime daddy so it is just a little old me today it it is Monday it is a mini-sode but it is also Christmas even though B is not here we both decided that we cannot leave you hanging so today I will be doing this little mini-sode let me just say it one more again, all by myself. I'm throwing the biggest pity party here. It is, it is disgusting. <laughs> but without any further ado and more feeling sorry for myself, let's get into today's case. So today I'm going to be talking about the vampire of Niteroi. And his name is Marcelo Costa de Andrade and he made headlines in 1992 when he confessed to a nine-month murder spree. One of Brazil's most infamous killers said he raped and slaughtered 14 boys from the slums of Rio. Now almost a million people live in the slums of Rio de Janeiro and the most notorious ghetto sprawls down the hillside and overlooks the elegant high-rises of So Conrado and some of Brazil's most spectacular beaches. It is called Roxinha, Roquinha, Roche. I swear I practice how to say this but my brain is just not brilliant today. No, it is Monday. It's not working. But perhaps nowhere in the world is the disparity between the haves and have-nots more striking than here. And nothing a more potent reminder than the thousands of homeless kids who are constantly roaming its streets. It has an estimated population of 150,000 and armies of children maraud their way through its labyrinth alleyways and youngsters die in the shanty town by such numbers that Brazil has been compared to a country at war. I cannot even imagine what those poor little kids are going through growing up that impoverished and not knowing where your next meal is coming from so you resort to crime and not only that the crime in the area is so bad the children are being killed in such a way that is it is being compared to war that is crazy i have recently i'm not going to comment on the situation that is currently happening but i have seen some some videos and you guys it's just my heart 
it bleeds. Like you you heard on last Friday's podcast, I when it comes to kids, I want to cry. So lo and behold, I'm doing a case about kids. What came over me? I do not know. But we are here now. Okay. Between December 1987 and November 2001, about 3,937 children died violent deaths in this area. The majority victims of the ever-escalating drug war has been raging in the slums since the cocaine trade took hold there in the early 1980s. The children are employed as soldiers by the drug lords to protect and expand their turf. Armed teenagers murder each other in the battles and innocent bystanders get caught in the crossfires almost every day. Those who do not run the drugs are forced to survive any other way they can. They scavenge for food, polish shoes, beg, steal and sometimes mug people and sometimes even kill. Blamed for the spiraling crime rate and for making Rio one of the murder capitals of the world, the children find very little sympathy amongst the other citizens of Rio. Universally shunned and despised, they are routinely beaten, abused and attacked. The situation was made even worse in the 1990s when they were regularly being picked off by roving extermination squads. My mouth doesn't even want to say that word. Okay. Made up mainly by off-duty policemen and security guards, the squads were on the payroll of normal, law-abiding citizens, but their mission was to clean up the streets. In 1991, at least four children were being executed every single day. For a murderer, especially one with liking for young boys, the conditions of Brazil's streets could not have been more ideal. The daily death toll in Brazil was so high that the authorities did not even notice that somebody else was also slaughtering young boys. For Marcelo Costa de Andrade, who had spent almost his entire life on the streets, it wasn't difficult to blend in and lure the children away from prying eyes to abandoned spots and to their slaughter. While the children from Rio slums were wary of the dangers that consistently surrounded them, Marcelo seemed to be one of those few adults they could trust. With a harmless appearance, a gentle manner and a soft, childlike way of speaking, the 23-year-old lived with his mother, regularly attended church, had a normal job, and even when talking to children, made constant references to his faith in God. Growing up poor in the slums, Marcelo's childhood was in many ways the same as those of the street kids. No food on the table, no running water, constant abuse, and he hardly went to school. Marcelo spent most of his time on the streets, hustling and he was just 10 years old when he ran away from home for the first time and at 14 years old he started selling himself to adults for sex. Born to poor immigrants from the northeast region of Brazil, Marcelo lived for most of his childhood in Rio de Janeiro. He was constantly abused and beaten by his father who was also violent towards his mother, a housekeeper. Marcelo was eventually sent to live with his grandparents, who were 
also abusive and violent. Years later, he traveled back to Rio and began to live with his abusive step-parents. Now, from what I could understand is he, his parents, after he left to go live with his grandparents, his parents got divorced and his mother remarried and his father remarried. So when he went to go live with his parents again, he kind of hip, like hopped between the mother and the father and then both step-parents were also abusive towards him. So this this kid is just, he's just getting it every which way. To make the situation worse, Marcelo was raped and almost killed by an older man who tried to strangle him. He was then sent to a boarding school where he was bullied. At the age of 14, he was kicked out of the boarding school and he subsequently began to work as a prostitute. During that time, he tried to commit suicide, but failed. He was also arrested and sent to Funabem. And this is a, a prison for juvenile delinquents. And he escaped. And after he escaped, he met another homosexual man. And he began to live with him. But he still continued his sex work. He eventually left this partner and returned to live with his family once again. And then he started selling pamphlets. He started working as a pamphleteer. Now, from what I understand, this is companies pay you to go out and hand out their little advertising pamphlets on the street. That is as much as I could figure out about that. Yeah. But Marcelo, he frequented a church and was told by the preacher that children go to heaven when they die. So as a result, this sparked an interest in killing children. I don't know how he got from that to that. Yeah. As he believed that killing adults was wrong because he would be sending them to hell. At age 17, he attempted to rape his 10-year-old brother. According to his mother, Marcelo had a strange habit of listening to an audio recording of his younger brother crying. And he apparently did this obsessively. Now, where Mr. Marcelo got this recording, I do not know. It was not made, what do I say, made public. I was not made aware. Nobody was. Nobody wanted to tell me. There was no articles that I could find telling me where he got this recording. He liked to listen to his younger brother crying, which red flags, alarms should have been, been, been going off here. But it did not for the people around him. Well, obviously not enough. This was also when he left hustling for good and attended church regularly with his mother. This is also when his killing spree began. So I'm guessing on the surface to his family, it seemed like he was getting his, his little life together, but he was not. According to Marcelo, it was an encounter with a young transvestite that triggered him. And once he'd begun, there was no stopping him. One day, when I was walking, I met a 14-year-old boy. A transvestite, Marcelo recalled in an interview with a magazine in 2003. He said, he prepositioned me 
to go to a hotel with him. I had sex with him and I kissed him on the mouth. I paid him 50 rayas. And that is about, give or take 190 South African rands. I never got to see him again, but it sparked the desire for new boys. As I didn't find another one like him, I ended up forcing myself on others. I always took them to a deserted spot. The sadism went to my head. I ended up killing some of them. I do not remember their faces very well. The first one I caught was in Niteroi. I only know that his name was Anderson. I offered him money. I said he could help me light candles in the church. But I took him to a deserted place. When we got there, I raped him. I then strangled him with his own shirt. I returned to the spot where the body was three times to see if anyone had discovered anything. But nobody ever suspected me. Marcella went on to murder 13 other street kids following the same pattern as the first. He'd lured them with sweets, money or some sob story to secluded spots, rape them, strangle them or beat them to death and he also had sex with their corpses. In two instances he drank their blood. After sexually abusing his victims, often For an entire night, he would crack their heads open and collect the blood in a bowl to drink. Marcelo carried the bowl with him everywhere he went. He drank their blood so that he could be, quote, as young and as beautiful as them. And he killed them so that they would go to heaven. He also removed his victim's shorts and kept them as trophies. Marcelo targeted the pretty boys he could find, always hunting for smooth legs and a pretty face. But there was also a religious motive for his murders. The church he attended was the controversial Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, founded by a state lottery employee turned American-style evangelist. It is one of the f- it is the fastest growing religion. In Brazil, as well as offering protection from voodoo and witchcraft, the church claims that demons are responsible for people's problems. This includes homosexuality, which is viewed by this church as a disease. Oh, you know these people. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, this Marcelo's church would cast out these quote unquote demons. And to this day, the murderer claims that he was possessed by evil spirits who forced him to kill because they like children's blood. I thought, you know, sometimes I make notes and then I read them. And then it feels like I'm reading it for the first time. And then I'm like, what? But I thought he said. So, you know, okay, okay. In the midst of his killing spree, the devout Marcelo was going to church four times a week for up to five hours at a time. He claimed later that a priest had told him that boys who died under the age of 13 automatically went to heaven. He misunderstood the priest's message, interpreting it as meaning that by killing the boys, he was not only ending their awful existence, but also ensuring them a one-way ticket to paradise. 
It was for this reason that Marcelo never targeted girls. Girls, he claimed, were different from boys because they didn't go to heaven. And of course, boys were prettier. Dr. Helen Morris, a forensic psychiatrist, went to interview Marcelo in Brazil in November 2001. She recounts the experience in her book, My Life Amongst the Serial Killers of the World's Most Notorious Murders, through an interpreter. Marcelo reiterated his claim that he had been doing his victims a favor by killing them. The children had bad lives here, he told her. If they are children, when they die, they go to heaven, a better place. But Marcelo went much further than gently sending them on their way. After raping and killing 11-year-old Oder Jose Munez, whom he had met near a football pitch, he returned later that night with a machete, which he told his mother he was taking to cut some bananas. He went back to the crime scene and hacked the boy's head off. Why? asked Morrison. Marcelo told her that the other children in heaven would make fun of him because he didn't have a head. After all, the kids used to make fun of him when he was in school. This is so cruel. Marcelo's killing spree was prolific but short-lived. According to Morrison's account on the case, on the 11th of December 1991, brothers Alte, who was 10 years old, and Ivan, who was 6 years old, was picked up by Marcelo, who offered them about 400 rand if they both accompanied him where he lit candles in a nearby church. The boys readily agreed, but as soon as they were away from public view, Marcelo turned to Altair and tried to kiss him. Altair tried to run, but his... But Marcelo was too quick for him, and he grabbed the boy and he threw him to the ground. Altair hit his head, and he was drifting in and out of consciousness. Then Marcelo turned his attention to Ivan and he started strangling him. I was so paralyzed by fear, I could not run away, Alte later recalled. I watched in horror, tears streaming down my cheeks as he killed and then raped my brother, said Alte. When it was all over, Marcelo moved towards Alte, opening his arms wide. The terrified boy could smell the dead brother all over Marcelo's clothes and was convinced the monster looming above him was going to kill him. Instead, Marcelo embraced him. I have sent Ivan to heaven, Marcelo said. I love you. Too terrified to try and make a run for it, Alte agreed to spend the night with Marcelo. Marcelo took him. Marcelo took Alte to a petrol station where he washed him off because he he obviously hit his head, so there was some blood on his face. So Marcelo cleaned him up and then he took him to a bushy area behind the petrol station. And that is where they spent the night. And throughout the night, he would repeatedly rape Altair. The next morning, Marcelo even took Altair to work with him in the tourist district. However, Altair managed to escape and find his way home. He told his mother what happened, but he did not tell her immediately what happened to his brother. Only two days later, he confessed to his sister what had happened. He went to the police, and they went to the police, and Marcelo was arrested. Something quite strange to note 
is that Marcelo would often revisit the crime scenes and he would leave trays of food and other offerings to his victims. He had returned to Ivan's corpse to tuck the tiny boy's hands into his pockets so that rats wouldn't chew on his fingers. But instead of making a run for it when Altair escaped, Marcelo carried on as if nothing had happened. And he was arrested at work where he was handing out flyers for a jewelry shop. It is said that when the police, when Altair took the police to Marcelo's work, he was sitting there having lunch, eating his little brookie. They also said that when Ivan's body was found, they would not necessarily have thought of this being foul play because initially they thought that the boy had just drowned because um, people discovered the little boy's body, but they didn't know who it was. So they assumed, the police assumed that Ivan had drowned and then they would have left it, but then they noticed that his little hands were in his pockets and that made them believe that, okay, listen, this little boy didn't drown. Nobody drowns with their hands in their pockets. And that is when they were able to identify him because Alte obviously told his sister what had happened and then they went to the police and then they could connect the dots. Initially, Marcelo only confessed to the murder of, murder of Ivan, but when Marcelo's mother was called in for questioning about two months later, she reluctantly told the police about how her son had asked her for a machete and he had come back the next morning and it was smeared in blood. Marcelo finally confessed to the murder of 13 other children and led the police to their burial sites. On August in 1993, he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, schizophrenia, a low IQ and psychopathic tendencies along with severe mental illness. He was declared not guilty by reason of insanity and is currently being held at Henrik Roxo Psychiatric Hospital. He is evaluated annually every year since then, and every year he has been declared insane. Bizarre Magazine spoke to Ilana Kasoy, an expert on Brazilian serial killers who had met and interviewed Marcelo many times. Kasoy is well known for her work as a profiler in the investigation into Brazil's most prolific serial killers. Many serial killers in Brazil kill children, she says, but each one has their own way of doing it. Each one of them has their own fantasies and symbolism, his own way of ritualistically killing someone. But my meeting with Marcelo was different to my meeting with other serial killers in many ways, because by meeting him, I could really understand what it is to be an insane person. Marcelo had this mental illness and you could get the feeling he doesn't know the true scale of what he did, or even the difference between right and wrong, and there's no cure. Nobody knows what treatment he should receive, so they just give him drugs to keep him under control, and that's about all they can do. In her chapter on Marcelo in Serial Killers, Made in Brazil, Kasoy changed the names of the victims to biblical names, so the mothers who read it would not know which child was their own. While she has met and interviewed some of Brazil's 
worst serial killers, meeting Marcelo is something she will never forget. Meeting someone like Marcelo Costa de Andrade is very hard for any human being. I was sick in bed for about four days after I spoke to him. He is like a wolf, dressed in sheep's clothing. Look at him, and you would never for a single second imagine what he is capable of doing. As soon as he told me that he took the shorts off every child he killed and kept it as a trophy, and then he asked me to bring him a gift, a pair of shorts, I would never... I did not give this to him. I hope he stays in the loony asylum for his entire life. Marcelo managed to escape from the asylum, however, in January 1997, when a guard accidentally left the door open. He was on the run for 12 days until frantic police finally managed to catch up with him. He had managed to hitchhike his way more than 3,000 kilometers to visit his father and when he was picked up he said he was on his way to the Holy Land. He told police that by killing the children he was now purified. Marcelo now resides in the psychiatric hospital in Rio de Janeiro. He claims to be an evangelist and expresses his hope that one day he will be back on the street. All he needs, he says, is the love of a good woman to keep him on the straight and narrow. He asks God to light the way. But according to Kosoi, his so-called religious convictions are a sham. Marcelo is not a religious guy, and he never was, she said. He just heard a priest who said a child under 13 years old goes straight to paradise if he dies without sin. And he believed it literally. As one of Brazil's sickest criminals, Marcelo relishes his moments in the spotlight and has been known to demand Hollywood-level fees for interviews. The vampire of Nidroy, as he is sometimes known, even phoned up Dr. Morrison in her hotel room in 2001 and demanded about 200,000 rand for an interview, a request Morrison flatly refused. Now that his fame is fading and his exploits have been outdone, Marcelo, according to Kasoy, loves talking with anybody who would pay him attention. His mother is the only relative that visits him, and even that is only once a year. He shows absolutely no remorse. His mind is more or less the same as a 12-year-old, she says. He dreams of going to Disneyland or Moscow, winning a million dollars and having plastic surgery on his face so that he would never be recognized by anyone. He never feels bad about what he did. He just worries that it screwed up his life. He wasn't happy telling me what he did, but he wasn't sad about it either. It's something that doesn't make a difference to him either way. He believes he was utterly tender to the children he killed and he saved them from hell. He doesn't know it was really awful. He told me all of this and he was talking about it as if it was simple everyday things, but with specific and cruel details and the tone in his voice never changed never changed.
for a single moment, this might be the creepiest thing I have ever heard. And why I decide to do this case on Christmas, only I will know, which I do not. (laughs) And I do hope that you guys enjoyed today's Monday mini-sode and that it did not spoil your Christmas dinner. You guys must have a lovely Christmas. Have a Merry Christmas. Appreciate your family. Hug each other. Love each other. And as Is always says, go touch some grass. And we hope that Is is enjoying her holiday while she leaves me here by myself. And I'm going to go. Go pity potty some more now. Okay. And you guys must have a lovely week. We will catch you on Wednesday when we have the second seg or the first segment of Cupcakes Questions, which is very interesting. And then after that, it will be full episode Friday on New Year's with me by myself again. Maybe I can find someone to do this with me. Because this has been quite weird, talking to myself. Well, I do that a lot, but not out loud. So, I can't decide if I like it or not. I don't know. I must be. Oh, come back. (laughs) It reminds me of that. There's this one little episode of Spongebob where Spongebob goes on holiday and he asks Patrick, so Patrick, what are you going to do while I'm gone? And then Patrick just looks at him straight and he's like, uh, wait for you to come back. And that's literally what I'm feeling. So, yeah. But you guys must have a good one. And we will see you again. I hope you get some wonderful gifts and a lot of love. Goodbye.